Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Professor Chris Budd describes the maths behind Google and the iPod, and shows how maths has led the way to the modern information revolution. Um, thank you for that introduction. It's a great pleasure to um, be here on on my home turf, as it were. Um, if anyone's interested in this topic and wants to learn more, I'll be doing a whole summer series of talks on maths in the modern world at the Royal Institution, which is here um, starting um, next week. Um, but here we are, and I'm going to tell you a bit about, as, as was advertised, the maths behind the modern world. Now, I know um, maths hasn't got a, a particularly great image uh, as, as a subject to kind of give popular talks on, um, and in fact, um, here are some common views uh, on mathematicians. These are views that I've got from intensive research, uh, largely with my daughter's friends. Um, <laughs> she's a teenager. Um, and so here's one. Math is completely useless. Come on, you all agree, uh, especially my students. Um, uh, mathematicians are evil soulless geeks. Now that one <laughs> is specifically got from my daughter. Um, and there's a very evil quadratic equation about to attack you. Um, if you're interested, you can read my uh, forthcoming book, 101 Uses of Quadratic Equation, which that's the front cover of. Um, uh, all mathematicians are mad. That's another view. And a mad mathematician. Um, and the occasional um, talks on maths which do make it into the public, popular press um, are largely based on that extremely significant maths textbook, um, The Da Vinci Code, um, which means that most people, if they've met, met maths, have met it through the Fibonacci sequence. So those are common views on maths. Now what I want to try to do in this talk is kind of shatter that illusion and give you perhaps a, a different and hopefully more positive view on maths. So um, the truth about maths is, is actually very, very different from these um, typical misconceptions. Um, one is, um, and this is very much the essence of this talk, that the modern world we are in is a world that simply would not exist if mathematicians hadn't done some mathematics at some point. So we, we are living in a mathematical world, and that's what I'm going to try to kind of convey to you. Um, secondly, um, but maths, if you want to learn the future, don't ask mystic Meg, ask a mathematician. Um, one of the things I do my research into is, is weather forecasting, and weather, modern weather forecasting is, is all based on solving mathematical equations. And that helps you tell the future. Um, mathematicians aren't solving geeks at all. Um, the modern musical scale was invented by a mathematician um, and can date itself back to Pythagoras. And one of the other things I'm, I'm very interested in, actually, is the link between maths and art. And, and this is a piece of African art with beautiful geometric design. Um, and maths isn't a boring subject that's only done in offices by people with um, body odour and so on. It, it's really a subject full of mystery, surprise, and, and lots of magic. Um, so... Maths made the modern world. Now, I'm going to give you guys a, a challenge um, and see how knowledgeable you are about mathematics and mathematicians. I'm going to put a picture up of a mathematician. To my mind, the mathematician that did most, more than anyone, to give us the modern world, the guy that changed everything, as it were. And I want you to tell me who you think it is. Okay. 
so it's a challenge. And by the way, I should have warned you, um, this is a talk which requires audience participation. <laughs> <laughs> so here we are. Ah, sorry? Maxwell. Maxwell, what a knowledgeable audience. Fantastic. Um, when I gave this talk in Swansea, no one knew who this was. Um, when I gave this talk in, in um, um, where was it I gave this talk? Manchester, someone said, is that God? <laughs> the worst one was when I gave this talk at a school and someone says, is it your mother? <laughs> It's not my mother. <laughs> my mother comes from Essex. Now, uh, but very well done, Maxwell. But what's interesting is that if you put that picture up in front of most audiences, no one would have a clue who that was. Now, let me tell you about Maxwell. I don't know who... Quick straw poll. Who's heard of Maxwell? Okay. Some of you, but certainly not all of you. Maxwell is one of my real, real heroes. Um, and Maxwell... It's famous primarily for a set of equations called Maxwell's equations. And here they are. Um, so these are Maxwell's equations. This is the hardest math you're going to get in this talk, by the way. It's best to get it out of the way, first of all. Um, let me tell you the story about these equations. Um, so I'm professor of maths at the Royal Institution. The Royal Institution is in London. Some of you may have seen the Royal Institution <coughs> Christmas lectures. Um, and they're always great fun. Um, and uh, well worth watching uh, each year. And um, the person that started these Christmas lectures off was Michael Faraday. And Michael Faraday worked in the Royal Institution down in the basement. You can actually still go to where his lab was. And he did extraordinary work. Um, he's, he's mainly known for his work on um, finding the links between electricity and magnetism, which led to the electric motor and the dynamo and electricity as we know it. And he also worked on many other things, including um, the discovery of benzene. Um, and Faraday did all this experimental work. He's generally regarded as one of the greatest experimental physicists that's ever lived. But at the same time as doing all this, he kind of came up with some general theories for electricity and magnetism, but he had a healthy disrespect for mathematics. Well, he, he understood maths, but he, he knew he wasn't a mathematician. And he left it to people that came after him, such as Maxwell, to um, take his equation, his laws, and put them into mathematical form. So what Maxwell did, um, and he was working in Cambridge at the time, although he actually comes from um, um, Edinburgh, um, was he took Maxwell O'Faraday's laws and wrote down mathematical equations. And these are mathematical equations, I won't go into any detail, but these are equations which basically link electricity, that's E, with um, magnetism, things like B. So these are equations linking electricity and magnetism. So what? Well, this is where the real magic started. He wrote down these equations, and then he solved them. He found the solutions of these equations, and found that the solutions were waves. And they were waves um, which coupled electricity and magnetism together. And using his equations, he could work out the speed of these waves, and he found that the speed of the waves was the same as the measured speed of light. And he deduced from that that these were light waves, which they were. Um, so these are the equations for light. And you can get a T-shirt which says, and God said, blah, 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 and then it's light. <coughs> um, so... 
But he did much more than that. He did something which is philosophically rather fun. Uh, one of the big questions in philosophy is, can we learn anything which is beyond our senses? And to a mathematician, this is obvious. Of course you can. You write down equations and you solve them and you find things which weren't there to start with. And what Maxwell found was that not only did the, um, these equations have solutions which were like light, but there were also um, other things which um, obviously were wave-like solutions which weren't light. And these are what we now call radio waves. And it wasn't until some years after he wrote down these equations that the German physicist Hertz came along and actually found radio waves in practice. And then Marconi, after Hertz, came and developed them into radio systems. But if it hadn't been for Maxwell and these equations, we would never have known they were out there. So let's see what um, those equations led to. They led to radio, obviously. They led to Wi-Fi, TV, radar, mobile phones, microwaves, <coughs> GPS, sat-nav. All of that comes from that one set of equations. Can we imagine a life... Um, well, the older of you probably can, but maybe the younger <laughs> ones can't, without TV, radio, Wi-Fi, and certainly mobile phones. And those, none of those would have been possible if it hadn't been for that. Well done, Maxwell. Um, it's nice to say that um, after a large amount of lobbying, um, there's now a statue for Maxwell up in Edinburgh. Um, and um, <coughs> as well as discovering radio, Maxwell did an enormous amount of other work and he is generally credited with inventing colour photography. Um, he also wrote poetry. So, an amazing guy. Um, and I think it's very sad that if I were to put up a picture of, say, Charles Dickens, everybody would know who that was. Um, if you put up a picture of, I don't know, Queen Victoria, everyone would know who that was. But um, Maxwell, well, well done, sir, at the front. Um, but I would thought most people wouldn't actually know who this was. And yet he's probably had more influence on our lives than just about anyone I can think of. Um, Splendid man all round. Okay, so that's Maxwell. So, having shown you one mathematician that's changed the world, let's show you a few more. Uh, so, here is um, two quite young guys. Um, this is Bryn, and this is Paige, and these are the guys that came up with Google. They are extremely wealthy, as it out. I'll tell you a bit of a story about these guys. These were PhD students at the University of Stanford in California. And the internet was kind of beginning at the time. And they came up with an algorithm to search the internet, which uses um, things called matrices, which are things that you learn at A-level. Um, and typically when you meet them at A-level, you think, what's the point of this? Um, and um, then you learn about eigenvectors and eigenvalues, and you think, what's the point of this? But they took all of that theory, and I'll get to this at the end of this talk, um, put it all together, and came up with an, uh, a method for searching the internet, which is brilliant. And that's the Google algorithm. Um, and in particular, it uses a technique called the SVD, or Singular Value Decomposition, uh, which was being developed at Stanford at the time, and that's why it was very timely. Um, I actually know the person that invented the SVD algorithm. Well, I, he's dead now, but I knew him at the time. And these two guys actually approached him and asked him if he'd like to be the third member of their company. And he said no. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he regretted it. <laughs> anyway, so that's Brilliant Page. Two very famous mathematicians stroke computer scientists. Okay, let's have a look at some other ones. Um, anyone know who this is? Leonard Euler. 
That's Euler. Well done. In- intelligent students at the back there. Uh, this is Leonard Euler, uh, one of the greatest mathematicians ever, 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 ever existed, certainly in the top form, I would say. Um, and Leonard Euler was interested in, in networks. He um, was he started um, studying them really for recreational purposes and developed a theory of networks. That's the theory of how things are connected together. And that theory is now the basis of the internet. So, um, in a sense, Euler was the guy that invented the internet. Well, he didn't really, but he came up with the basic ideas behind how the internet's connected. Um, He also um, arguably invented Sudoku puzzles. Um, And uh, Fermat, who was another mathematician a bit before Euler, um, who was working in number theory, is very famous because of Fermat's last theorem, um, came up with various ideas in the way numbers work, and prime numbers in particular, which have led to an algorithm called the RSA algorithm, and that's the algorithm which is used when you go on the internet um, and you um, go onto a secure website and you send all your credit card details to turn those credit card details into um, some sort of code which can't be cracked so that you can send them through um, reliably without anyone finding them. Um, and there's a bit of a worry that if anyone can solve the codes that these mathematicians have come up with, the entire banking system will collapse. Um, maybe Greece will make it collapse anyway. But, um, um, but anyway, all your internet security and the internet that we know is based on ideas um, from mathematicians. And I'll talk a bit more about that later on as well. Um, here's another mathematician. This is a guy called Galois. Um, Galois is possibly the most, um, maybe the only, romantic mathematician in history. Um, let me tell you about Galois. Galois, as you can see, is young, and he came to a very sticky end. Um, at the age of 21, he, he was um, uh, challenged to a duel <coughs> over a woman, and was shot dead um, and died in agony. Very nasty things. Um, uh, not a great career move to the students about that. Um, but um, before he did that, at the age of about 19, he came up with what's called now we call Galois theory, um, which did a number of things. It cracked some um, problems which had been around for 2,000 years due to the ancient Greeks, but also paved the way for an enormous amount of future mathematics, um, part of which is called uh, the, the mathematics of error-correcting codes, and this is the mathematics which is used to encode things like the music that go onto CDs and other types of recording device. Um, nothing whatsoever, you know, it, it was never occurred to him that it could be used to make CDs apart from anything else. He was at the beginning of the 19th century, and it was a few hundred years after that that they came up with CDs, CDs. but um, if it hadn't been for him, we wouldn't have this. And this is an interesting point to tell our lords and masters who always want impact for what we do, that occasionally with math you have to wait a few hundred years, but then you do make a lot of impact. Um, another mathematician. Um, another one of my favourites. This is, this is um, a mathematician called Radon, who is uh, an Austrian mathematician. Um, I, I kind of like this guy, partly because he is what I imagine a mathematician looks like in most people's imagination. You know, he's all got glasses on. So, so um, I can see him in the audience already. Um, um, a large number of math teachers in my um, experience look just like him. Anyway, um, Radon 
was studying um, in 1917 in Austria um, essentially the mathematics of shadows. Um, and the question he asked was, um, if you know what shadows are, you can see a light um, that an object casts, can you reconstruct what that object looks like? Um, and he developed a technique, which we now call the Radon Transform, um, for um, taking the shadows something casts and turning it into an object. And you might think, well, what's the point of that? Well, the point is um, that if those shadows are cast by X-rays and the object is a human body, then you can use Radon's ideas to produce an image of the human body from the X-rays going through it. And it was him that came up with all the basic ideas that are used in medical imaging. Um, again, he worked in 1917. It wasn't until about 1967, which was 50 years later, that these techniques were actually used. But um, I imagine many of you um, have benefited from going into a hospital and being scanned and not being cut open. Okay, so um, things like ultrasound scans, MRI scans, CAT scans, all of that um, goes back to the work of Shannon, uh, of, of Radon, and um, you know hugely improved people's lives. Millions and millions of people are alive today thanks to the work of that guy. Um, and one final mathematician that really changed the modern world, the, the one mathematician that will, everyone will know, and I put her up, is this one. Did you know she was a mathematician? Florence Nightingale. Um, she um, obviously is very famous for her work in nursing. Um, but what's interesting is that when she went to the Crimea to uh, improve the conditions there, she, she mostly did most of her improvements by collecting very, very careful statistics, and those statistics linked cause to effect. So she could see what was causing various problems and various diseases and so on, um, and those statistics uh, would then help um, work out what was going wrong and how it could be corrected. Um, and arguably she um, founded the modern theory of medical statistics, uh, which um, again is the basis of modern drug testing and and most treatments, um, and she was the first female member of the Royal Statistical Society, and the Royal Statistical Society has, um, in its headquarters in London, has uh, the Nightingale Room named after her. Um, so it, it, it's fantastic that she is um, you know, there as, as a, a great example for, for mathematics linked to, to um, uh, saving lives again. So here are loads of mathematicians, all of whom have made our modern world essentially possible. Um, and so um, there we are. That's my kind of claim that mathematicians really have changed the modern world. Can you say what Mr. Shannon did? Oh, sorry, yes, I missed him out. Shannon, uh, yes, another one of my favourites. Um, after, just after the Second World War, um, Shannon was a mathematician working in the Bell Telecommunication Labs. Um, and he was studying the a theory for how information is communicated, in particular when it's communicated when there's lots of noise and corruption around. Um, and he came up with the basic ideas of communication theory, and these are um, now used all the time as we transmit information around. So, so that's shown. I didn't have space to put this picture up. Anyway. So, um, mathematicians really have made the modern world possible. Um, and it's, thanks for asking that, Shannon, because that leads me very naturally 
into um, my um, next statement, which is one of the reasons um, that maths is so important <coughs> in the modern world is that the modern world is dominated by um, information. Um, and in a way that it wasn't until relatively recently. I mean, um, the, the amount of information that we have uh, flying around literally in space around us it is vastly greater now than it was even 10 or um, 20 years ago. And, and my belief is, is that the real impact maths is going to make um, um, on the modern world uh, and as it develops is through the increased use of information. So let's have a look at some of the ways in which information is, is currently stored. Um, so here is the, the iPod, which um, I advertised in this talk. Here are a few others. Um, there's the venerable CD, um, satellites, um, obviously the laptop. Now, for the younger members of the audience who don't recognise these <laughs> books, um, um, and uh, actually, interesting story. Um, uh, again, I say I work for the Royal Institution. The Royal Institution has a problem that it has to store lots of information, and the Royal Institution has to be around. It's going to be here in 100 years' time. Um, what's the best way of storing stuff so in a medium which will still be useful in 100 years' time? Well, basically, the printed medium is still very, very important because all, everything else... Um, I mean, when I was um, doing my computing as a PhD student, we stored everything on floppy disks. Well, what uses floppy disks nowadays? Okay, so um, you have to be quite careful in your media and store things. But, but here are all the different types of um, way that information is stored. Uh, and what is incredible is that um, I mean, a computer like this can store, well, uh, thousands of books on it. I, I bought my daughter um, a Kimball, um, recently, Kindle, sorry, uh, for her birthday present, and she, you know, she's got a thousand books on it and all her lecture notes and everything. Um, it's amazing uh, what, what technology there is. So, so here is the, the modern world, it's full of information. Um, so, what I thought we would do um, as a little exercise is look at some of the maths associated with, with information. Okay. Now, um, it's absolutely vital when you've got information that you store it correctly, that you transmit it correctly, and that you can search it effectively. Okay, there's no point having information if it gets changed when you store it, um, you can't send it to anyone else, or you can't look for information within it. Um, and one of the key things that mathematics does is it helps you in all of these things. So um, I'm showing you a talk, which is a PowerPoint talk, which has been stored on my computer very accurately. And, um, and that talk, I actually emailed to myself from my computer at home, and it was able to be sent uh, over you know, space um, into my laptop very reliably. Um, and we can search, um, if you type Math and Modern World Chris Budd into Google, <coughs> you will actually find that talk um, wherever you are in the world. So we can do all this. Um, and, and just to kind of show you the sort of um, level of ability um, that you can do with maths, this, this is um, a picture of Saturn, um, which was taken with the Pioneer satellites. Um, and this was taken by a satellite going around Saturn um, with a transmitter which was, um, I don't know, about 30 watts. Now, 30 watts is about that brightness of that light up there. And I want you to imagine 
being able to see that. You probably couldn't see that in Bristol. Okay. Well, you certainly couldn't see it. I mean, um, the um, and imagine taking that all the way to Saturn. Um, so um, this information was transmitted from Saturn with something no brighter than that, all the way to Earth, and we could read it perfectly. And the way that's done is the information from the satellite is converted into a special code, using mathematics, is sent down um, to Earth as that code, and that code is designed so that the information will get through, and then it's reconstructed into that picture. That picture couldn't have been done without maths. Um, here's something else you can do in maths. Um, here is uh, the number plate of my old car. Um, taken using a camera which, um, well, you know, it's a bit of a blur. I wasn't focused properly. Can anyone read that? Okay. If you take that, turn it into numbers, apply a transformation to it, which um, can get rid of the blur, then you can actually, um, in real time, and this is how long it takes, do that to that. Let's do it again. Oops, wrong way. There you go. Can you read it now? Um, I'm afraid to say, folks, that this is the technology used in speed cameras. <laughs> um, to find your numbers. Anyway, so these are the sort of things that maths can help us do. So let's have a look at some of the maths behind it. So at this point, we, we are going to require a bit of audience participation, but not very difficult stuff. Um, so basically, computers store information by um, asking kind of mathematical questions of it. Um, they store information by asking simple questions, but lots of them. So the question we're going to ask, I'm going to simply ask a member of the audience um, to pick a number between 0 and 7. Um, is that a hand up at the back? Do you want to pick a number? Okay. Um, don't tell any. Well, no, don't tell me who it is. You're allowed to tell people. Um, and it's got to be not one, two, three, four, five, six, or seven. Um, not uh, fractions. Okay. Have you picked a number? Right. I'm going to ask you some questions. All you've got to do is say yes or no. Okay. Um, so. Um, uh, the animations were done by my son, by the way, um, uh, who is supposedly doing some revision for his A-levels at the moment, but I'm not convinced. Okay, question number one. Is your number four, five, six, or seven? No. So, um, the answer to the first question is no. Is your number two, three, six, or seven? Yes. Good. Um, is your number 135 or 7? Yes. Right. Can anyone see what the number is? Three. Three. Is your number 3? Yes. Good. Excellent. We'll do it once again. Uh, would anyone else like to have a go? Yes, the young lady up there. The young is very flattering. Is your number 456 or 7? Yes. Is your number 236 or 7? Yes. Is your number 135 or 7? No. 6. Is your number 6? No. I make mistakes, sorry. Shall we try again? Um, 
Right, is your number four, five, six, or seven? Yeah. No. Uh-huh. Is your number two, three, six, or seven? Yes. Is your number one, three, five, or seven? Yes. Okay. What's the number this time? Two. Two. That's right. Good. All right. It's going to get worried. Okay. <laughs> so, um, providing you get the right answers, this method shouldn't work. <laughs> um, and hopefully, some of you can see what I'm doing. Um, these are um, the questions I'm asking, the number of questions that um, tell us what the binary digits are for the numbers between naught and 7. And what I've done is I've written naught if the answer is no, and 1 if the answer is yes. So naught 1, 1, which was um, the first number, is the number 3, and naught 1, 0 is the number 2, and 1, 1, 0 is the number 6. And computers store numbers essentially by asking these simple questions which are unambiguous, yes or no, and they can store these digits within, with, um, within their architecture very reliably. So um, binary numbers were invented around about 1700 um, as a, a method of representing numbers, and they are what are used in computers to represent information. Um, and a binary number with three digits, like this, is called a three-bit number. And um, we can make up the number from three digits by taking the answer to the first question, multiplying it by four, taking the answer to the second question, multiplying it by two, and the answer to the third question, multiplying it by one, and adding them up. So here we have 0, 1, 1, so uh, well, there it is up there. Um, and 1, 1, 0 would be 4 plus 2, and plus 0 and gives me 6. So that is a three-bit number. Okay, so, um, and there's what they look like. So, um, naught and one are called bits of information. Um, computers store these bits, typically through little circuits. Um, in the original computers, um, these were done by magnetizing uh, little um, uh, rings. Um, and nowadays, it's all done in flash memory and stuff. And so the simplest information has one bit. Okay, so when I communicate with my daughter, um, all I need to know is when to pick her up at 2 a.m. in the morning or whatever. And so rather than ringing me or sending me a long information, she simply buzzes my phone and then I know how to pick her up. That's a one bit information. Okay. It's about as much as my dog has in its memory. Okay, so that's uh, that. Um, those are th the three bits. Um, usually, um, binary numbers have many more, and a convenient number of bits um, for um, a piece of information in a computer is 8 bits, and that's called a byte. Um, let me tell you why 8 bits are used. Um, with 8 bits, um, you can store 256 different characters. So that, um, there are 256 different ways of having ones and zeros to give something. And 256 gives us enough characters to have all the numbers uh, between 0 and 9, um, all the letters A up to Z, all the letters in uppercase, all the punctuation, Greek letters, Russian letters, whatever. Um, so this allows um, you to store all the different possible letters um, in, in one um, 
symbol. And uh, they're converted to bytes, so the, the, the word spotty dog okay, has 10 bytes, because you need a, a byte for the space. S-P-O-T-T-Y space D-O-G. Um, so when you buy a computer, a computer typically has its memory um, measured in bytes. So the first computer I ever had, which was the venerable Acorn Atom, had a grand storage of one kilobyte. One kilobyte. Um, if you paid an awful lot of money, you could increase that to 17 kilobytes. Oh, we would thought we were so rich. This was 1980. Um, a modern computer, such as the uh, ones here, uh, my laptop would typically store about 300 gigabytes, okay. which is 300 million times more than my first computer. That's how much computers have come off on, on, I won't say my lifetime, but since I was 20. Um, So, um, let's show you how information is then stored. Um, uh, Another type of information is a picture. Um, This picture picture. is one of the um, uh, uh, pandas at Edinburgh Zoo. Um, uh, Pictures like this are divided up into pixels. Um, a pixel is a small square which contains information and a typical pixel um, is um, stored as one byte on the computer and the byte means you can store 256 different ranges of intensity. Um, In a typical picture there are about a million pixels um, per picture. Um, Well, there are a million for each colour and you have one for red, one for blue, one for green. And that means if you take three times a million times one byte, um, a typical picture um, stored is, takes about three megabytes to store on a computer. So, so if you think about that, if you send an email, um, then um, that's how big that email would be if you put a picture on it. So you can go and check if you want to send something. It's actually quite a lot, in a sense. Um, um, here's, uh, for those of you who will want to see him, um, my dog. Um, little question, um, interesting question. How much information do you think there is in a typical book, a book without pictures? Any idea? You can work it out by thinking how many letters are on the page, how many pages are there in the book. Or you can think, if I bought a Kindle, how much would you store? What size book? Harry Potter. <laughs> no, it doesn't. The size of letters matters. Just a, a, a well, well, to save you. That, that's how many letters are on the page. Yeah. So the answer is about 100 kilobytes. Okay. So um, if you get a Kindle, a book takes about 100 kilobytes. Um, if, in contrast, you wanted to watch Harry Potter the movie, um, so a typical movie takes up about 10 gigabytes. Gigabytes. So um, my hard drive here um, is about 200 gigabytes, so I could store about 10 Harry Potter, 20 Harry Potter movies on that. Um, current estimates for the brain. Any idea how much information there is in the brain? We've established in my dog's brain it's one bit. <laughs> you know, food. <laughs> Any idea? Well, um, the rough estimate is about a terabyte. So uh, that's um, 
one followed by 12 zeros bytes, um, which modern computers um, could easily store. So a modern computer has about the same storage capacity uh, as the brain, um, though it doesn't have the same interconnectivity as the brain, so it, it can't operate in the same way. Okay, so that gives you some idea of how big things are. So here's, here's a question now. Um, I frame it as a joke. Um, how does a monster count to 25? How does a monster count on his fingers? Correct. A monster can count to 25 on his fingers. There we are. In fact, you can all count to 25 on your fingers. In fact, you can all count to 25 on the fingers of one hand. Okay. Um, so you might think, I can count to five. Where are all the other 20 fingers? Um, and the way you do it is this. Um, you use binary. So that's the number zero. That's the number one. That's the number two. That's the number three. That's the number four. That's the number five. That's the number six. That's the number seven. Because I was in a car accident when I was young, I can't actually get that finger up, so you have to imagine the other ones. But um, by doing this process, you can count all the way to 31 on the fingers of one hand. So next time you're at a party, you can tell this. <laughs> I can count to 31 on the fingers of one hand. If you go to two hands, you can count to 1,023. So a monster can comfortably count to 25 on his fingers without any, any problems whatsoever. Right, well, um, I talked a little bit about this guy, Shannon, um, a, a little while ago. Um, and Shannon was interested in how you transmit information um, if um, there is a chance of making a mistake. And in fact, that's usual. Okay? It's usual to make mistakes. Now, one of the things I do, because I give talks all over the place, is I like when I travel around to have um, a camera with me so I can take pictures... Um, of anything which might be useful for talk. And I came across the following one, which is one of my favourite ever pictures. There. <laughs> now, what I like about this so much is not only is this a mistake, but it's a mistake outside of school. If you're going to do it, do it well. Um, so we do make mistakes. Um, and a typical mistake when you uh, are sending information is you send a binary number and one of the bits gets corrupted. So this could happen very easily. Um, uh, you're sending something down over the radio, and someone turns on their hairdryer, and that sort of um, piece of static corrupts the um, one of the symbols. So this happens all the time. Um, and Shannon was interested in how much can you still send useful information through, even if mistakes are made. Um, so the first thing you need to do when doing this, is to actually tell whether you've made a mistake. So we're going to um, try this game again. I'm going to, um, again, ask some questions. Um, but this time, instead of telling me the truth, you're allowed to lie. Um, but you can only lie once. So I'm going to give, to anyone who wants to do this game, um, the option... I'm either always telling me the truth or lying, but if you're going to lie, you can only lie, lie once. Lying twice is no good, and lying three times is right out. Okay? So, here are our questions. Okay. 
can we find the liar? So would anyone like to uh, join in the game? Yes, good. Okay, so remember, you always tell the truth or you can lie at most once. And we're going to see whether you're telling the truth or lying. By the way, it's okay to lie. I know in general it's bad, you get into trouble and so on, but just for today you are allowed to lie once. Okay, so is your number four, five, six or seven? Is your number two, three, six or seven? Is your number one three five or seven? No. Is your number one two four or seven? Yes. Okay. So, do you think she has told the truth, or do you think she has told a lie? Lie. I'm afraid most people think you're lying, and so do I. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, you told a lie. Which? Where did you tell your lie? Question number two. So. Um, your, your number was two, um, but you, you, you lied on the second question. Okay. Right, so um, I was able to detect that you were telling me um, a falsehood, and, and this is how it works. We, we've got um, an extra question there, and if I put the numbers between naught and seven up, these are the answers that you'll get if you answered everything truthfully. Um, but um, you fibbed on that one to give me that. Okay. Now, if you look at the answers, if, if all the answers are truthful, there's a, a pattern here, and the pattern is that all of the um, ones... Okay. Can anyone see what the pattern is? Well, there's four there. Two, 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 two or zero. It's always even. Okay. So if you tell the truth, there's an even number of ones, and if you, if you lie once, there's an odd number, and that's how I knew you were lying. So this is a way of detecting, in a very simple way, whether you're telling one lie or not. And this extra question gives an extra amount of information, and this is called the parity digit or the check digit, and it tells you if you've made a mistake. So? You put the board back. Oh, sorry, yes. Um, so, um, and this is used all the time when information is sent, you have this extra check digit, and the computer looks at that um, to see whether a mistake is made or not. Um, and if a mistake's made, it might say parity error, and then you might get the blue screen of death. <laughs> um, so that's the, t- the check digit, and that tells you whether you made a mistake, and if you've made a mistake, then the computer then, then has a further look. Um, and you can take this to a great deal of sophistication um, with things called error correction codes. Now, I don't have any time to go into detail here. Come to my role as teaching lecture on this. Um, but the idea of an error correcting code is that, um, again, with the numbers between 0 and 7, you'd, you'd, send, you'd have those first three questions, and then you'd ask a few more questions. And the questions are, are there not only to see whether the mistake's been made, but, in all, but um, also to give information how to correct um, the um, symbol into the actually the correct one that it should be. And the mathematics of this is really rather exotic. It involves studying objects in, in six-dimensional space. And it's um, the same mathematics as the Grosser's problem of how do you um, put six-dimensional oranges into a box. 
And it might sound very weird, um, but um, this very exotic mathematics is used basically so that if you have the symbol for A and the symbol for B, then these are very, very, very different symbols. And you can corrupt the signal for A quite a lot before it turns into the symbol for B. And this is the basis of what these things are called error-correcting codes. Um, and these are devices which are used to encapsulate information. So remember Benji? Remember Benji the dog? This is what happened when Benji ate my ELOCD. <laughs> now, I have to explain. There's my wife. There's God. And there's ELO. Okay? So, um, but even after he'd eaten my ELOCD, it still played. And the reason it would play is that although it's got all this corruption onto it, the error correction on that CD allowed the computer to still reconstruct the, the music. And, um, and this is hugely important, and it's, it was the same technology that's used in the satellite image of Saturn, and the same technology that's used in very much straightforward things like on your mobile phone when you're talking to someone, on a, a standard telephone. So if I, if I talk to someone on a mobile phone, that information has typically gone through a satellite, often through multiple paths, and yet it still sounds very, very clear. I can ring someone up in America, and they won't know that I'm ringing them from England. It's so clear. And the reason it's clear is that the computer technology within the mobile phone is being used to reassemble and decode in such a way that you, you don't get any error. Absolutely wonderful things. And the theory all goes back to that, that French mathematician, Galois, who came to a sticky end at the age of 21. So let's have a look at um, another technique device which uses it, and that's the, the iPod. So the iPod stores information just like a CD, um, and it has all the error correction on it. But it does something else which is very important, and that is it compresses information. Now an iPod, I don't know, it's about that big. And an iPod can uh, easily hold a thousand songs. Now, a thousand songs, if you think about it, um, an LP, an old long playing record, rather, um, would store you know, ten, 10 songs or so, maybe 20 if you're lucky. Um, an iPod storing the equivalent of 100 LPs onto something that big. Now, how's it doing that? It's doing it by compressing the information, getting rid of redundancy. Just to give you a kind of demo of how this works, here's a very simple demo. Um, instead of sending this message, which has lots of vowels in it, which we don't really need, can you read that? You can send this message instead, which does not have any vowels at all. Okay? <laughs> so, we don't actually need vowels half the time to reconstruct information. Now, that's not what's going on in an iPod, but something not dissimilar is going on in an iPod. Um, in that, um, it, uh, one way iPods work is it would take a, si uh, a signal like that. That's a typical audio signal. Um, it, it decomposes it into harmonics. That's, that's much simpler sounds. Um, it recognizes that you don't need most of those. It gets rid of the ones that you don't need and reconstructs. Um, and so this... Um, thing here has um, not quite the same shape as that, it's lost a few wiggly bits, but essentially the same information. It sounds more or less the same to, to the ear. Now, iPods aren't hi fi, okay? 
But that doesn't really matter because the normal time you're listening to an iPod is, for example, during a math lecture, okay? <laughs> when someone's wittering on at the front. And so um, um, the fact it's hi-fi doesn't, this is not hi-fi doesn't really matter. Um, it's perfectly good enough to listen to. And that's how iPods work. They compress um, sound into what's called an MPEG file. An MPEG file is a very compressed thing that you can listen. So, um, just to finish this talk off, I, I promised you I'd tell you a bit about Google. So, here's Google. Um, so, what is Google? Well, Google is a, a technique for searching the web. And the web is, um, or the World Wide Web, is basically uh, a network which connects the websites which are stored on computers. So, I have a website which is my homepage. If you go onto it, you'll see a picture of me and Benji up a mountain. Um, and in fact, if you type Benji the dog into Google, it will find that picture. I've tested it. It works. There are other dogs called Benji that will also find. Um, but anyway, th that's what the web is. It's, it's, it's this network. And what Google does is it searches that network for information. Now, Google's very clever. And this is why it's so successful, that if you want to find something out, um, so if you type Gulp Lectures Bath into Google, it will find the Gulp Lectures. It won't, and, and that will be top of the list. It prioritises exactly what you want. Um, and the way it does this is it ranks websites in importance for the information they contain. Now... How can you tell whether something is important? Well, one way to tell whether something is important if, if your website, lots of people link into it. Okay, that's a measure of importance. Um, now, lots of people link into my website. They're called students. Okay, but that doesn't mean I'm important. It just means they want the answers to the example sheets. Okay. Um, however, um, if um, I don't know um, the Queen linked into my website then that might mean I'm a little bit more important. You know, if the Queen wants to learn things from me, then that makes me more important than the Queen, in a sense. Um, so what Google does is it, is it ranks a website in order of how many important websites link into it. Okay? So I'll give, I'll give another example. Suppose you want to find out about um, uh, football. Um, um, and if you can find a website which the managers for all the Premier Leagues all link into, then that's the one to go to. That's going to be the one where you're going to learn the information from. So it ranks websites. And the, the, the algorithm that it uses to rank them is called the page rank algorithm. Now, I used to think it was called the page rank algorithm because a website has a page and it ranks the pages. But it's not. It's called the PageRank algorithm because this is the guy that came up with it, and that's Mr. Page. <laughs> okay, and Bryn is the other one. Uh, it's a Bryn and Page. And here's their idea, and I'm going to just describe it mathematically, and then I'll do it, and then we'll finish this lecture. Um, the idea is, let's suppose that my, rank, my website has rank R. Okay? Um, and if I link to, I don't know, a dozen other websites... You take my rank, you divide by 12, and that's how much I give to each of those websites to contribute to its rank. Okay, so the easiest way to demonstrate this is through a, an example. 
Um, so I'm going to assign a rank of 12 to that website there. Just, I'll take a number, 12 will do. Um, this computer links to this one and that one. So how much does it give to each of these? It links to two. Oh, Lisa, okay, sorry, it links to that one, that one, and that one. Okay, how much does it give to each? Four, okay? So it gives four to each. All right? Um, this computer only has that one linking you to it. So what's that one's rank now? Four. So its rank is four. Okay. Now this computer links to this one and this one. So how much does it give to that one and that one? Two. So it's giving two, so what's the rank of this one? Okay, there you go. So, so that's rank six. This one links to that one and that one, so it gives three to that one and three to that one. So the rank of this one is now two. Okay, it's four plus two plus three is nine. And this one just links to that one. And so it gives 9 to that one. That one's got 3 coming in from that, so it adds up to 12. And it all works. Um, and it always works. And you can do this, and, and the maths behind it, for those of you who want to know, is finding the eigenvector of the adjacency matrix um, of all the webs. And if you want to learn more, come to the Royal Institution the week after next, and I'll be going in, take me an hour to go through it in detail with matrices and stuff. But, but that's not the point. The point is there's an algorithm which works. They can make it run very, very fast. That ranks all the websites and then they, search, they just pick the one that's with the biggest rank and that's the one they deliver to you. And that's how Google works. Absolutely marvellous. That's a network with four computers. All you have to do if you're Google is to do it for that number of computers. <laughs> and that's a sort of diagram showing the World Wide Web. And if you do that, you'll make billions of dollars like that. <laughs> so that's the end of my talk. I hope I've given you some idea now of some of the maths that's going on. I've actually missed out a lot of very exciting maths. Um, the real maths of the future, I think, is going to be where you link all this to this inside your head and to biological stuff, and then who knows where we go. But um, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens next. Thank you very much.